0: All right, good morning. Uh, I'm Zach. If some of you guys don't know me, um, if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm really excited to be filling in for Kyle this morning. Happy New Year, too. So uh, we were, as a staff, we decided that we are going to start off this year with a little mini-series on the Holy Spirit because we want to continue learning and growing in the faith as disciples. We want to try and explore every Piece of what God has given us to know, and really dive into that and, and give it uh, our best at understanding. That is the role of a disciple. It's to continue learning. Um, and so, later on, earlier this, uh, or at the end of last year, early in December, we started uh, kind of discussing about this conference. Um, that we might want to have here at the church. It's called Naturally Supernatural, and we felt that it would be appropriate to dig into the Holy Spirit to start the year off, to maybe set the tone and create the course of where we want to go as a spiritual family. Uh, In honesty, all of last year, the Holy Spirit, and really all of my... um, my time as a Christian, if you will, I've only been a Christian for a short period of time, and all of my time as a Christian, I've kind of had a hard time giving the glory to the Holy Spirit. I just didn't understand it. There's, there seems to be a lot of hocus-pocus um, t v g b type woo woo things that surround the topic of the Holy Spirit, and it just wasn't for me. Being a guy, if you know me, I'm a person that lives a lot in reason and uh, just arguments and what we can see and really figure out by the book. Um, so what I often encountered in conversations, and really it wouldn't be much of a conversation. I would just enter in to the conversation full of ignorance and saying like, eh. It doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to explore it. That's fine for you. And it was just a really uh, relativistic type of frame of mind that I would bring towards something that is true, actually. Um, But what gets created often in in this situation is a false dichotomy. You have people like me who get labeled as a person that is all about the truth, all about the Bible, all about you know, I might, somebody like me might even get labeled as like fundamentalist or, um, you know, black and white, no emotion. That's on one side. On the other side of this false dichotomy, you have the spirit-filled person, this person that's full of love and emotion, and they just feel their way through everything in life. They don't need any reason because the spirit is somehow talking to them, and that's all that matters, right? So, you get this false dichotomy, and over the over the past year, I, in some conversations with people, I was really struggling with this because I want to know my God. I want to know the God of the Bible. And it seems to say every all throughout the Bible, there's a case to be made for the Holy Spirit. And He is the third person in this thing that we call the Trinity, the triune God. He is divine. He is the God of the Bible. So I can't just neglect Him anymore. Um, so I come to this place that, that is healthy. I feel like I can give the Holy Spirit his due credit now because he isn't as mysterious as some people like to make him out to be. He is operating in the mundane. He can and does operate in the supernatural. He operates in our will and consciousness on a daily basis though and I think that is the power of the Holy Spirit that I want to try and portray to you guys today. I want you guys to see that he is with us right now. He's with us right now. There's, I'm not healing somebody. Legs aren't growing out, you know, just, and, and that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't here, okay? I want you guys to see that he is in the mundane and the daily, in the day-to-day. So the text that we're gonna be in today is in the book of John, and I wanna give a, a brief overview of the book before we get going, because I think what John is doing in this book is providing a, a very rational understanding of the God of the Bible. He's providing us with the proof and the clues to a context, a Jewish context. So it's very Jewish in in context. He's saying things that Jewish people know that we wouldn't. But let me give the overview. Um, John is the fourth and last gospel written. When you read this gospel, it absolutely reads differently than the other three gospels. Uh, this is why the other three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. They're kind of seen from one uh, viewpoint. John over here has something a little bit different. He, he speaks and writes and shares the story of Jesus in a very unique way. This book is broken up into about five chunks of information is what I, when I look at it. Of course, you have the opening chapter, uh, which is centered on two things. First, you have the poem that most people know if you've Uh, spent some time in the Bible. It's, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very confusing poem, but it's centered on that, and it's centered on the fact um, John introduces another guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is out doing work, and he's baptizing people, and he's pointing people towards the Lamb of God. And when that guy comes on the scene, Jesus, he starts pointing people towards Jesus and he's saying, this is the Lamb of God. And in that opening chapter, there's seven names, seven names that, John, uh, that Jesus accumulates that hint at, or not even hint, but, um, well, I guess hint at the identity of who he is. And that identity John's trying to do in the opening chapter is that Jesus is one with God. Him and the Father are one. That is the basis that this entire book is based on. John is trying to drive home the point that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and hence all of the other things that come after that as a result of that can be true. After after that opening chapter, you have chapters 2 through 12, which is what's known as the book of signs or miracles. And in those chapters, you get a lot of, you get a few stories, seven to be exact. So you're starting to see like a little pattern with the number seven of some uh, miracles that Jesus performed, some things like walking on water, turning water into wine, healing people, um, healing people, essentially. Uh, and then you also get, what, I think what's most important to, for us to look at today, because I'm not trying to look at those supernatural things, I want you guys to see how Jesus functioned with day-to-day people. There's, there's lots of accounts of how Jesus spoke with the woman at the well, how he spoke with the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, um, how he spoke to the Pharisees, not like Nicodemus, uh, the ones that were a little bit more irritating to him. All right, so you get a good, in this book, you get a good idea, not only of who the, what the identity is, uh, but you also get, an, you, you get a good idea of his character, how he actually spoke to people in his earthly ministry. Okay, I think what you'll find is that it's pretty surprising, uh, based on what we typically uh, look at. Finally, we get to where our text is at today, and our text is in in the midst of these chapters thirteen through seventeen, and it's what's known as uh, the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse are the final words that Jesus gives to his defo- gives to his disciples before the following day when he gets arrested and tortured and hung on a cross, okay? So these are his last words that we're looking at today. And if, if we know anything about somebody's last words, it's really important to pay attention to those because it's probably the most important things that they say. So what's inter- interesting about this book from a contextual standpoint is that it's written around 90, 80 to 90 A.D., 80 to 90 A.D., that means the original hearers were 50 to 60 years removed from the events told in this gospel. That means they were second-generation Christians. Because of this fact, there's a parallel between them, those people of about 90 A.D. to 100 A.D., and everybody else after them, there's a parallel between all of these people that we seem we can't be connected with, right, because they're so long ago, and us. And that, 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 parallel is based on a factor of time, okay? Just like the original hearers of this gospel, we are removed from the actual events, so it can be easy for us to believe the lie that because we weren't there, we don't have enough to believe. Because we weren't eyewitnesses, because we weren't first-generation Christians that hung out with Jesus, we don't have enough, we don't have a leg to stand on. John knows the predicament his audience is in, and by effect, the predicament that we're in, uh, by not being eyewitnesses. So he knows that an audience that is tired and confused and just wanting to live life with assurance that their needs are met needs a solid, a solid defense for what they believe. John knows that an audience that is suffering now and, has, uh, and does not understand where their Savior is and has never met him needs a, even a stronger reason for the hope that they believe in. An audience that may have forgotten, never learned, or learned incorrectly why and what this Jesus taught needs to know the truth is possible to grasp right now. Uniquely, John writes his purpose for the book at the end of chapter 20. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I actually have a typo in there. I kind of like it. It's not true. It says the song of God, but uh, it's the Son of God. Um... And that by believing this, you may have life in his name. Again, to reiterate, this book is about the identity of Jesus Christ, what he did in his earthly ministry, and that we have the option to either believe that or not believe it. He's making the case. All right? You've, it's, there is a dichotomy in this book. It's either you believe or you don't. Right? The, di- di- the dichotom- di- dichotomy that I don't want you to fall into is that you're either spirit-filled or truth-filled. Or something, right? So for these first and second generation Christians, it is quite literally hell on earth for these people. It was costly to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, every single apostle, except for the one writing this book, John, was killed for killed for believing in Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just like a quick over and done type of death. Many of them were crucified. One was crucified upside down. Many of them were beheaded. One was dragged through the streets of Alexandria for their beliefs. Some were stoned, and others, I guess I wrote it like this because I think it's—I thought it was better, but others were simply stabbed to death. Right? So, it, yes, it's dark, it's bad, it's costly to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, so what exactly do we have in common uh, with these verses 1 through 4 of this text and the second generation? Again, the parallel between us um, is the time, but the thing that we have in common with them is not that we uh, are being literally beaten to death and, and, and scared for our lives, for the things that we believe. Thank God we live in a, in a, a world, in, at least in a country, maybe not a world, but in a country now that we can actually have some beliefs, and I can stand here today and not worry about this. We can't, we're not hiding out in a basement, okay? So that's not what we have in, in common. Um, No one is sacrificing everything they have to believe this gospel. But honestly, doesn't our society try to to pummel the truth out of us with things like science, with things like intellectual debates? And when those arguments fall flat, because they fall flat very quickly, doesn't our society pressure us into watering down the teachings of Jesus so that we can restore our honor in public, so that we can become part of uh, the civic discussion? Because our discussion is not civic when we bring in something like Jesus Christ and and Christianity. Doesn't society use shaming questions and outright insults on social media and in popular media outlets that let Christians know that they better not get too far, far out of line? Yes, they do. Ironically, though, the intolerance police of the world are more intolerant than the people that are claiming to be intolerant. Regardless, Jesus was out ahead all, out ahead of all of this for his original disciples and for every Christian afterward. He warns in verses 1 and 2 of our text today, so let me read that to us, and then um, I'll go on. So we're going to be in chapter 16. If anybody wants to turn there, you can do that. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, because I guess that makes me a nerd. So... Um, All right. So in 16, we have Jesus saying, I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember I told them to you. At the end of verse 4 and 4b, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me where are you going, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, and if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So let's look at verses 1 through 4 and try and tie this to what what I'm saying about the persecutions. Jesus was out ahead of all of this persecution. He was letting them know and every Christian afterward know that this is going to happen to you. He warns his original disciples. He knew that he was about to be hung on a cross. He knew that his disciples were about to suffer the same problem. He knew, in chapter 15 he goes into this, he talks about the hatred of the world. He says, basically, because the world hates me, the world's going to hate you right? He, and, and earlier on, he talks about uh, um, that the, the servant is not better than the master. So whatever the master gets, the servant's going to get as well. All right? But he says, I'm saying these things to you to keep you from falling away. Only Jesus would be able to take something so cryptic and unsettling as you're about to be persecuted and, hung on a cruci- on, and be crucified and be like, I'm saying this so you don't fall away. Right? But he does, nonetheless. He says, he tells them in advance, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be outcasts." He tells them this because uh, he wanted to assure them that they have the truth and that the truth will be an encouragement to them when their persecution comes. In verse, th- uh, in, at the, in verse 2, we get an example of the amazing grace only found in Jesus' understanding of humanity. The people that do this persecuting, the people that undoubtedly, the the undoubtable things that are going to happen to these people and to us, I think, um, they don't stand condemned. They aren't necessarily bad people, these people that are doing this persecuting. It's not the people. Yes, the persecutions are condemned. The things that they do to us are bad. But what Jesus is saying here is that these people sincerely and honestly think that they're doing the work. They are sincerely and honestly doing the work of their God they're coming at you because they believe something sincerely they they it's by no fault of the, of their own it's not that they it's not that what they do it's the 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 fact of the matter is, is they're doing this because they don't believe in Jesus they believe in something else other than Jesus so therefore it doesn't really validate them but it gives them the reason to do what they do so we so what's interesting about this it's graceful actually Jesus is able to look at something like this and encourage us in it, right? This is what what I have here, is he's actually really encouraging and full of grace. The problem here in the text is that we will be persecuted by people who don't know Jesus, but Jesus is actually looking at this with a hint of compassion, and because of that, we can do that too. We should be encouraged by the fact that Jesus told us these things beforehand, and it's that prophetic word It's the fact that he told us beforehand, the prophetic word that is the source of our encouragement even as we move into something as heinous as, for them, as they move into something as heinous as persecution, for us as we move into Twitter and whatever and somebody doesn't like what we have to say about our views on sexuality, okay? So we can be encouraged by the fact that Jesus told us these things beforehand. It's not that Jesus himself is the comforter. It is the prophetic word he speaks that prepares us for and comforts us in any trial. But the next problem arises for us when Jesus isn't around anymore. Remember, it's us. This is for us, and it's for the people, the second-generation Christians that didn't have Jesus around. So, when Jesus isn't around to say these cool things to us, what comfort do we have, right? These second-generation Christians are still being hung on crosses. We're still being upset and getting offended, and that nobody around, nobody in our society understands what's going on, okay? People are scared to come to the church because of the persecutions out there, the lies of the world. People are scared to become Christians because, man, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes on, right? It's blasted out to us in society, to the world, including all of us. It's blasted out to the world that, for some reason, Christianity is not exactly what it's supposed to be. So as we move into verses 4 and 7, even in Jesus' absence, we are still first-generation Christians. That's the message I want you guys to hear in these verses. Jesus hasn't been telling the disciples about all of this tough stuff because he was with them. The disciples didn't need to worry about persecution because Jesus was there to def- deflect and take on all of the brunt of that. Jesus was the, uh, was the encouragement. He was the one that was kind of able to uh, fill their hearts and say, it's okay, guys, I got this. I can handle these Pharisees. I can handle this for you. And he does. Um, Jesus' presence was was the source of engagement, but now Jesus is once again telling the disciples he is going away. They are overcome with grief and fear so that they're not able to focus clearly. In verse 7, though, Jesus wants his disciples to sort of swallow their grief about any persecution talk, so he wants to kind of put that on the back burner. He said, he's already said, look, be encouraged. It's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. Let's stop thinking about that for right now, right? Like, which is kind of silly because this guy that they've been hanging out with for three years is about to, he's just saying, hey guys, I'm about to die, right? You're not going to get, you're not going to, get to hang out with me anymore, but hey, just, just calm down for a second. Let me tell you something. Um, he knows that he's grief stricken them, but he says in verse seven that the helper is coming and it is to their advantage that he comes. So up to this point, I just want to recap. Up to this point, we've got the identity of Jesus Christ, right? That's what John's trying to say. We've got... Um, we've got Jesus kind of moving into the upper room discourse and he's talking to his disciples. He's, he's constantly telling them like, hey, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, but this guy's coming, this other, this other person, the helper, he's coming. He's trying to encourage them. And right now, he's getting to the point, he's, trying to, he's basically getting to the climax of the story here. He's saying, you're gonna be persecuted, things are gonna go wrong, okay? But take heart, you're gonna have this person here what does that mean for us? What does that even mean? So Jesus has been touching on this theme. He goes he's going away, but he's sending the helper. The problem in the text is that he's going away. That is the overwhelming problem in this upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17. I'm going away. The grace in the text is that he's going to send the helper. He's going to send the helper. He touches on it 5 times. In chapter 14, 15, Jesus promises the helper. Also, he calls him the spirit of truth that only believers will receive because they dwell with him and will dwell with him. Again, in 14:26, we get the basis for why we can say the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches you all things and brings to your remembrance all that I have. The third promise of the Spirit is in 1526, and he refers, to them as, he refers to them as the Spirit of truth again, and he says he will join with the disciples in bearing witness about the truth of Jesus. Guys, these are the things that the Holy Spirit does. I do, I'm trying to drive home that message. Not many of them are woo in nature, right? They're not. The fourth and fifth promises continue on to reveal the main ministry of the Spirit. At this point, with the promises of the Holy Spirit, we can start to see that the Spirit's connection to the world and to us is based heavily, like the book of John itself, on communicating truthfully and accurately the identity of Jesus Christ. That is it. The Spirit is essentially an even trade. Jesus says He's leaving. Jesus says the Helper's coming. So in verse 7, we get not only, not only do we get the fourth uh, promise of the Spirit, but we get this other additional comment that Jesus believes it's better for us to have the Spirit. That's, that's something different that you didn't get in the previous, uh, in the previous promises. So I want to explore that a little bit, and I think that's going to shoot in the foot the argument of, oh, I wasn't there with Jesus in Galilee problem, so therefore I don't have enough proof. Uh, So Jesus seems to insist that him going away is better than him staying, so that he can give us the Spirit. That's what he's saying in verse 7. It's better. He says the exact verse, the exact word is, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It is to your advantage that I get killed. He's not just going, I mean, he's going away, but he's getting killed. He's gonna, it's going to be disgraceful for all of his believers, or for all of his followers. They're going to be disgraced. They're going to be scattered. They're going to be hiding. It's to your advantage that you are going to be hiding in your houses, scared to come out. It's going to be to your advantage. So all the generations of Christianity that have taken Jesus into their heart can know that even though we weren't with him, we have it better. He's given us his spirit. The spirit has been testifying on his own behalf and through other believers from the time Jesus sent him. The truth of the gospel has never waned. This is what I want you guys to get from this. The truth of the gospel has never waned regardless of this letter being read by second-generation Christians 50 to 60 years after the events, or by us thousands of years after the events, there is a mystery of how, but the fact that there is unrivaled documentation of the story compared to every single other religion and ideology that the world has to give us, every single one, that's a bold claim, more documentation than every single other religion and ideology that you can muster up is a testament to the promise of the Holy Spirit and his ministry of truth-telling. So therefore... We have to squash the idea that just because we weren't there doesn't mean there is a valid argument for thinking we cannot know and carry with us the truth that John is driving home in this book, the identity and the truth of Jesus Christ. And we are able to do this because the main and primary ministry of the Spirit, again, is not some hocus-pocus stuff that we need to be confused about. The Spirit comes to declare and make known who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And that includes a side of Jesus that for some people, uh, they tend to forget about, conviction. So again, in verse, uh, we have in verse 8, I I'm just want to read that for us again. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, when we look at verses uh, eight through eleven, there, and then, as in moving into twelve through fifteen, um, we see he, the Holy Spirit. Will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict seems to carry the proper amount of weight. I think there are some different. If, if, if you read along in your Bible, you might see the word um, expose. You might see the word convince. Well, the word convict is the right word. The Greek word is elenko, and it, it, all throughout the New Testament, anytime you see that word, that word is then kind of qualified by some sin that somebody has, okay? Uh, earlier on in this book, Jesus asks the Pharisees and religious leaders, who of you can convict me of any sins? And the answer is none. Um, so, the, the the proper word is convict, and these other words, they, they're, they're a little bit either too cerebral, something like convince. We're not, like, nobody needs to, to be convinced of their sin because they can be convinced and then go on doing it, right? Convict has a little bit of that convincing with it, but it also carries the weight of guilt and shame. Guilt and shame you have to do something with. You are either going to be convicted and feel guilty and change because of the shame that you feel for being guilty, or you're going to be convicted, know that you're guilty, and then harden your heart in response to it because, dang it, they were right, right? And I hate those people. So you're going to harden your heart. And guess what? Then you end up in that non-believing phase. Okay? Again, the whole point of the book. Um, I think in many, also, I think in many Christian circles, there's just this idea that people don't want to come to terms with, and it's that Jesus... Like, you look, I don't know, this probably doesn't look anything like him, but he's just so nice looking. He's just so nice looking, and I just, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Jesus is out there convicting people. I, I want to read something from, verse, uh, from chapter 8, just to get the point across, the, uh, the, the way that my Bible titles things. It says, uh, you are of your father. You want to guess who the father is? The devil. That's what Jesus is about to tell these people. They answered him, "Abraham is our father." Jesus said to them, "If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I hear from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did." They said to him, "We were not born sexual, uh, sexually Im- born of sexual immorality." We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, "If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I come not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. He's basically saying that your your hearts are hard. You cannot bear to hear uh, bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil." Is that nice? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks about his own character, for he is a liar. Remember, he's calling these people the children of this guy, so therefore they act like him. For he is a liar and the father of lies, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which is why they can't, because they're the father of the guy who lies. But, um, Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Not very nice. So, Jesus is definitely about conviction. He's not about condemnation, though. I don't want you guys to get confused about conviction. The way that Jesus convicts is actually again full of grace. All right, Jesus properly balances the in your face you're the devil with an opportunity for salvation. He always balances it. Now, we do it wrong. We hear the word conviction and we're like, yeah, Jesus gave us the authority to go around and convict people and smack them down and beat them with the Bibles and whatever. Like, no, that's not what Jesus did said and gave us the authority to do. It's not what he does. It's not what he does. So, through Jesus' conviction, he also offers the gift of salvation. The person who refuses to take hold of that salvation condemns himself. Jesus does not condemn people. He said he's here to save people. So the person that, basically, all that you have to do to condemn yourself is just not believe in the truth that John is trying to get through in this gospel. Jesus wants to save everyone, but as I've been telling you, there's a cost associated with being a, being a follower of Jesus, a lifestyle change, to say the least. In verses 8 through 11, the Spirit goes on. I just, I finished writing this to, this morning, <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh my God. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, just read to you my um, exegetical comments on uh, verses 8 through 11, and then we'll just see where it goes. So, in verses 8 through 11, the Spirit goes on pressing home the world's sin despite their unbelief. He convicts the world of sin because they refuse to believe in, Jesus, in the identity of Jesus. That What I'm saying here is in relation to the fact that uh, Jesus says the Spirit comes to convict the world in their sin. right next like just like jesus convicted the pharisees and religious leaders of his day in all of their righteousness the spirit convicts all of us christians included in all of our righteousness okay in all of our righteousness he convicts the world in all of our quote-unquote righteousness we experience today um and why shouldn't he This is what Jesus does, and Jesus sends the Spirit to do this. Righteousness has to do with truth claims and behavior. In these verses, Jesus said that he was the truth, and now he's going to the Father. Previously, he says that he's the truth. It's one of the I am statements. He says, I am the truth. I am the way. Now he's saying, I'm going to the Father. So Jesus is the truth claim, and because of that, his behavior allows him to go to the Father. Okay? If you make a truth claim in this world, if you say um, I believe in the spaghetti monster in the sky, right? Then that determines a certain amount of behavior. If you have no behavior based on your truth claim, you're just yelling out something random, like "Like I like blue shoes. Like, okay, and what does that make happen? Alright? A truth claim requires some action and behavior. Alright? So... Uh, So now he's going to the Father. Something unique to his behavior. Jesus, the, the thing that's unique to Jesus is that he's the, he's the only one that, that's gone to the Father. Okay? So therefore, his truth claim must have been true. Uh, you don't, you don't, if, if you don't believe, if we don't believe in the identity of Jesus, then we don't know him and his truth. We don't, have, we don't carry his truth claim. If you don't believe in the identity of Jesus, you don't carry his truth claim. And if you don't carry that, then you don't have the behavior regardless of how righteous you think you are, right? There's, it's, there's a good, there's a good um, C.S. Lewis in his book talks about how like we have this scale and like zero is the worst human being that you could possibly be and 10 is the best human being that you could possibly be. It's like we rate these people like, oh man, that guy's a really good guy. Oh, that person's really bad, right? It doesn't, the, the pre-qualifying thing to be on this scale, it has nothing to do with religion, it's just a perception that we have of people. So we have people down here that are a zero, that could be a Christian, that could be a believer in Jesus Christ. And then we have people over here that's like an eight or a nine that don't believe in Jesus Christ, right? They don't accept the truth, but they're really good people. There's nothing that Christianity has that says that, you, that the only way to be a good person in this life is by believing in Jesus. What Christi- and, but what I'm trying to say to you is that regardless of how good you are in your righteousness... The only way that you go to the Father is by carrying the truth of the gospel. The only way that you go, it's not based on how good you are. The issue for the Christian that knows, that carries the truth of, the, uh, of Jesus, who's like a zero or a one or a two, he's a really scrummy person, if that person is actually a believer in Christ, that person's going to pass all on up. That person should be being discipled. That person should be practicing the spiritual disciplines and becoming a better person. That's me. I was a turd like five years ago, right? Sitting on a couch at Stephanie and Kyle's house telling my wife that it's her problem. Her emotions need to be checked by her. Her emotions are weakness. Her emotions are just... Ridiculous, and it's not my problem. She's literally sitting there crying in front of me, and I'm making a case for how my selfishness, like literally, I say the word selfish, my selfishness is good, and you need to figure it out because it is good, and you can't argue with me. The argument was good, believe me, (laughs) right? But I was just a, a bum, right? I'm just sitting there just sounding like an idiot, but in my head, because I'm worshiping my God, myself, I'm doing it sincerely and honestly. Because I didn't know the truth of Jesus Christ. And when I got that truth, guess what? I moved from a, I don't know where I was, below five on the scale to somewhere up here. And it doesn't matter where I'm at. The fact of the matter is that God is making me better. And even if I only make it to a three, like, the, the truth in my heart remains that I'm trying okay and that god has given me that salvation because of just believing in him just believing in who he is okay so so i think when many people hear the word convict and righteousness and judgment it's hard to hear people's ears turn off they don't want to hear that no I'm, no it's it's all love it's all good even christians no it's all love man you don't have to you don't have to you know you don't have to believe that part of the Bible. You don't have to, you know, you don't, right? But eventually, I think if the Spirit is here to do what He is here to do, which is to convict the world, including Christians, then eventually, if you're growing, you end up believing certain things that you once never did, like me, in this case, the, uh, the Holy Spirit, right? It's something that makes sense to me now. So when people hear those words, they they turn off. It's hard to reconcile the fact that Jesus came to give one truth. He came to make the ultimate truth claim about all the things that us human beings hold dearest. Every single human being, regardless of whether or not... I'm making some big claims today, but that's because Jesus made them first. Every single human being cares about four things, and operates on four things in their life. Whether they have thought about it or not, the, every, everybody carries a, a truth claim in their life. And that truth claim is based on four things. It's based on how they think the world began. It's based on what them trying to find their purpose in this life. It's based on how they figure out what's good and bad along the way. And it's based on what happens to them when they die. That's it. Those are the four things. That's all, those are the biggest topics in the entire world. Okay? And Jesus is saying, hey, guess what? I fill all four of those, and nobody fills them better than me. Now, other people might fill those things, other things, ideologies and gods, fill some of those things, but they don't fill them as well. It's definitely kind of like this is the half-empty cup and Jesus is the full cup, right? They don't even get the half-full cup. It's like there's no optimism in it right? Because Jesus is the fullness of the truth, and he brings one, and he tells them, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the bread of life. I am the vine, and if you don't abide in me, you're dead, right? Well, clearly people back then didn't want to hear it just like people don't want to hear it now because they ended up crucifying him and killing him for saying all of those things, But the fact remains, regardless of the unbelief, the evidence through claims and actions and the historical record of the events that happened after our text in the crucifixion uh, are nearly indisputable, nearly indisputable, okay? It's disputable, but there's nothing that can beat it. There's nothing that can beat it. Jesus knew he was supposed to die for the world's sin, but but his work was only beginning at that time, so he sent his spirit to maintain his ministry. And the point that I'm trying to get, I've been doing a lot of talking about Jesus because everything, as we read in verse 14, everything that the spirit does is simply here to glorify Jesus. Jesus. You thought you were going to hear a sermon about the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit and Jesus are the same. So the more I talk about Jesus, the more I talk about the Holy Spirit. The more I tell you about what Jesus did, the more you know about what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. Why is the Holy Spirit doing something right now? Because Jesus said that when he dies, he's going to send Him to us. Does everybody get the Spirit? No. Only the believers only the believers get the Spirit. Only the believers are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in fourteen fifteen, Jesus promises the helper, of, the helper, the Spirit of Truth, that only believers will see, will receive, because they dwell with Him. Meaning, you dwell with Me right now. When He said that, Jesus was saying they dwell with Him. Like He was using. I don't, I don't know why He speaks in code sometimes, but He's saying like you're dwelling with Me. I'm the, hero, I'm the Spirit, right? They will dwell with Him. You will dwell with the Spirit. You, you're not dwelling with Jesus bodily anymore because He, he ascended and he's at, He sits next to, next to the Father, but He sent His Spirit to live with us. We dwell with Him. Emmanuel. So the Spirit comes to live inside us. This is how the convictions that Jesus is saying that the Spirit is going to do gets out to the world. How do we convict the world in its sin? Or how does the Spirit convict the world in its sin? How does the Spirit convict the world in its righteousness? How does the Spirit convict the world in its judgment? It does that by us. It does that by us. We're where the Spirit lives. Now, the Spirit can operate on its own, surely, Right? The Spirit's been operating on its own since the beginning of time, hovering above the waters, clearing the chaos. Right? We are not the sole vessel for the Spirit. But we cannot operate and do anything of the nature of God without the Spirit. So that means if you're a 10 on the scale and you're the greatest person of all time, the things that you are doing are great. They're great. You're doing good. But it, in the end, it has no meaning because what you're doing is not moving people towards the, towards the ultimate destiny, right? It's really good. I'm not taking it away. But I think for us, what's important to us is that we try to find um, the truth of the matter and do the best that we can and move towards the desti- destiny. Just be, a, be like Jesus as much as we can, all right? So uh, I'll close with this. In chapter 30, 13, 31... Right? So it seems like it's pretty heavy that we're the that we're the sword, right? So we talk about the sword of the spirit, that we're the sword, right? And we're carrying it, we're wielding it, we're supposed to carry out all this conviction. It sounds it sounds really bad some, for some reason because the word conviction has a negative connotation. So in chapter thirteen thirty one, Jesus gives the new commandment. Come on. Jesus says this. His disciples... Wrong one. Sorry. 1331, a new commandment. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children... Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, You want to know how to convict the world Holy Spirit style? You want to know how the Holy Spirit is working in this room and when all of these people in this room move out? It's by believing Jesus is who he said he is so that your behavior and your lifestyle changes so much that people can no longer convict you. They will, but their convictions are false convictions. They're going to say that, wow, I can't believe you're like that. Zach, I can't believe you go to church now. Wow, you preach, right? I can't believe you believe that. That's a conviction, but it's a false conviction. You know, and you know that because they just don't believe in Christ, and it's too bad for them. They have the opportunity. There's no condemnation yet. They have the opportunity. So through our love and our behavior, regardless of their conviction, regardless of their disposition towards us, it shouldn't change our disposition towards them. We can look at them, as I said earlier, with grace and understanding that they're only doing what they feel honest. Thank God Jesus was able to look at me with grace and conviction as I stood there and told her that she was the worst. All right, sorry, Jenna. But you can have assurance and encouragement that Jesus himself is in you wearing all of that false conviction and persecution right along with you. He wore it first. His followers wear it second. Nobody's better than the master. And where is he as a result of that? He's with the Father. And that's where we're going to be too. So, I'll pray. Jesus, thank You for Your words. Holy Spirit, thank You for working through the mind and the heart and the hand and the pen of the Apostle John to give a powerful message to the second-generation Christians all the way to us. You lumped us all together. You Holy Spirit you 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 allowed him to write something that just can edify us and encourage us and assure us of the truths that you that the book of John displays. Jesus I pray for myself and these people that we just move from off to on if we're thinking about the Holy Spirit. That we move away from being worried and scared about the heebie-jeebies of the Holy Spirit and just move towards the truth of the matter, the spirit of truth, the ministry that he is here to do. His primary ministry is just to testify about you, God, Lord Jesus. So we thank you for that. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that we have just so much to be grounded in that we aren't grounded in midair with the spaghetti monster, that we are grounded on solid foundation of truth and trust in you, God. Amen.